0: To episode number eight of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about volcanic eruptions, magma, and all things related. This is the third in our series of volcanology basics uh, that we've been covering during here, the great hiatus related to the COVID-19 quarantines and stay-at-home orders. Uh, this, uh, I'm Dr. Eric Clemente from Denison University. And Discover Magazine and with me as always is my co-host.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Janine Krippner. I'm with the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program in Washington, D.C.
0: So we're all kind of hanging in there over this uh, extended period of societal weirdness. Um, Although Janine was just telling me before we recorded, she has started a new running regime that, uh, I had no idea existed. Do you want to tell tell our listeners about your your new running?
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, I tend to deal with stress by exercising like a crazy person. And I, um, a friend told me about this app, Zombie Run. And it's a running app. I mostly walk. but I walk extremely fast. And I do intervals. And there are two different volcano runs. So the first one is like a 5k. You're a technician out in the field and you're going and checking different equipment. And it's pretty decent. I mean, they do use a white smoke and I don't like that, clearly, but it's pretty good. And then the second one is a 10K, which I did this morning, and the volcano, actually, the fictional volcano in the Cascades actually erupts. So there are a few things I cringed at, like the volcanologist who's radioing in with the techie, which is you as you're going. Um, she's a little too excited, and I would be much more concerned if I was her. And she's promising the techie that he'll be fine, which is something I would also never do in the field. But it's it's pretty good. I recommend it. I'm not getting paid to say this. I haven't even signed up for the paid version yet. But if anyone else there wants to go for a volcano run, here's an app.
0: So so what are you outrunning in these things? Is it like just bombs or
1: uh, lava
0: I guess lava flows it wouldn't make much sense because it would be a very slow run. Um pirate class <laughs> flows might be a little fast. So is it just running to escape danger?
1: Uh, I, th- I think in the actual zombie runs it is running zombies. I haven't tried that yet, but uh, this one is the first one is running to different stations to check monitoring equipment. The second one is running away from, um, there is bombs at one point, there is a lahar, um, and then you, you find someone who, and then he enters himself. It's just, it's, yeah, you're trying to get back in one piece when there's a Mount St. Helens style eruption behind you. Luckily, the lateral blast went the opposite direction, but it's interesting
0: okay yeah so that makes a little more sense although i guess the technician is just running between stations because they're in a hurry. Um, it seems again, just maybe I'm, maybe I'm overthinking this that we shouldn't need to worry about how literal a volcano run app <laughs> might be, but this is the thought that crossed my mind thinking about doing this, but
1: the uh, one of the, so you get a, a new section, every kilometer that you, you hit um, and the first one started, it starts out with the volcano erupting and she's, she's shouting at you to run because this things erupting and you're on it. So, it's, it has some neat sound effects as
0: well. Give it a go. Let me know what you think. Uh, th- I probably won't because I don't run. But um, other people, <laughs> I, I don't run. That makes me sound like I'm sort of lazy person. I'm not. I just I don't like running because my knees are bad, and it's makes it's uncomfortable. So of course I'm a geologist. And I go hiking all the time and that contradicts exactly what I just said about why I don't run, but whatever. We all live lives of of contradiction and uh, cognitive dissonance. So there you go. I guess on, in that vein, today we're going to be talking about uh, explosive eruptions. So we can be thinking about uh, running out of the way of explosive eruptions, although many of the ones we're going to talk about are probably big enough that if you're having to... If you're having to run away, you're probably in some sort of, um, you're not going to make it. So we'll, we'll get there. We're also going to talk about the volcanoes of South America, which is near and dear to me uh, in many re- for many reasons. So that's the topics for today. Um, So I guess we'll jump right in. As usual, I have some slides that you can follow along with on this episode. Uh, The link for those slides are on the website for the episode at popularvolcanics.weebly.com, and you'll be able to find it there to um, follow along at home. And that's where we are. So uh, with that, we can, if you have your slides open... You can see that uh the first, the opening slide is just again a nice picturesque scene of a caldera in South America. Uh do you know which caldera this is, Janine? No,
1: I don't. It looks really pretty there. Which one
0: is it? It is uh, uh in Ecuador. Oh. So it is um, a quite famous one in terms of uh potential large eruption. Um but it's again very picturesque. Calderas in general are very picturesque things, considering the how they formed. So, all right, South America, slide two. Uh, South America, it's 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 a fascinating place vul- uh, for volcanoes because almost the entirety of the western seaboard is covered in active, potentially active volcanism. There's a couple stretches that things are quiet for reasons that we won't get into here because it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> But active volcanism stretches you know, from Colombia uh, into Ecuador. There's a little bit of a gap in Peru. And then down in southern Peru, it kicks back up again through Chile and Bolivia and northern Argentina. And then there's another little gap. And then we have uh, potentially active volcanoes from uh, Chile, mid middle of Chile, all the way down to the tip of um, Tierra del Fuego. So we have... Um, quite a stretch of volcanism. And it it, it varies a lot. a lot. All of this volcanism is being caught, well, almost all of it, 90% of it is being caused by a plate, the Nazca plate subducting underneath South America. So sliding down underneath the South American plate. And it's made some uh, interesting uh, features in South America. Some of the thickest crust you'll find on Earth, the average thickness of a... A slab of crust on a continent might be 30 to 40 kilometers thick, um, maybe even a little less than that. But in the central Andes in Chile, the crust is 70 kilometers thick. So we have a lot more crust that magma has to rise through it. And that causes some things that we'll talk about uh, later on. But um, there's sort of different character for different volcanoes along this stretch of uh, the western coast of South America. And you'll see that we actually, one of the common traits, though, across the whole stretch is explosive eruptions, and that's why we're kind of focusing on that uh, when we're talking about South America. Uh, Do you have anything you want to add about South America?
1: Uh, No, other than I want to go back there a lot. I was actually supposed to be flying down to Chile this weekend. (laughs) So along with everyone else in the world that's had things been canceled, that's okay. I'd rather stay at home and not get other people sick if I transmit it.
0: Be honest yes I, I i apologize for rubbing salt in the wound of not being able to go to chile by <laughs> having to talk about going to uh things in chile but there you go <laughs>
1: that's okay um
0: all right so we're gonna kind of just do first a little travelogue down the coast at some volcanoes that i just kind of picked because they're cool yeah we well, get a sense of the difference volcanoes in uh across the continent. Uh, So if we start in the north in Colombia, this is one of the reasons why I am especially fond of South American volcanism, is because uh, that's where half of my family comes from. Uh, My mother is Colombian. Uh, In slide three, there's a little map in the corner, uh, the bottom corner, which is showing the areas that have lahar uh, hazards from Nevada del Ruiz in Colombia. And in the bottom left-hand corner of the map is a city called Paneda, and that's where my mother's from and where most of my, uh, many of my family still live uh, down there. So we are uh, a family who lives uh, within easy view of a volcano that has had one of the you know most catastrophic uh, volcanic events of the last century, being the mud flows that came down Nevada de Ruiz in 1985 that killed 20,000 or more people. Luckily, uh, Pareda is not on one of the major drainages of Nevada do Ruiz, but it's a big... uh A complex volcano that can produce, it produces ash pretty much right now, almost constantly. It's producing a little bit amount, a little bit of ash. Um, and even the eruption that caused the lahars was not a very big eruption, but melted enough of the snow and ice to cause this lahar hazard. And it really sort of jump started, I'd say modern volcano monitoring. Does that seem right to you, Janine?
1: Yeah, so it it definitely you know this was a big never again moment for volcanology. So this was a moment that spurred a lot of people to um, to have. I think didn't there wasn't this the reason VDAP, the Volcano Disaster Resistance Program exists? Am I right with that? I believe so. So. With this eruption, it was, as Eric said, it wasn't a a massive eruption, but it it wasn't the eruption itself that that killed over 23,000 people, it was the lahars, because there were hot pyroclastic deposits that landed on the glaciers, melted a lot of water, and those lahars, or mud flows, carried um, all the way through several towns, and then the town of Amiro, the the, closest, the hardest hit town, thousands of people died, and looking at um, images you can see that if they would just walked up the valley walls up the hill next to them they would have been safe so this is really gut-wrenching and heartbreaking for volcanology Um, and it it shows the importance of volcanic monitoring and communication and it's it's one of the things that drives me
0: i was probably Oh, 10-ish maybe. So a few years after the eruption that, that produced the mudflows, we drove around some of the area and we crossed an, a part that had been filled with the mudflows. I don't think it was Almero. I think it was just one of the other tributaries. And I remember kind of seeing the the Lahar deposits and it looking like somebody had just poured a bunch of concrete um, into the river valley. And that's, uh, again, I people always like to ask me why I study volcanoes. I can't say that that is the salient moment that pushed me in that direction, but it's definitely a memory that uh, sticks out in my head of uh, seeing the results of a volcanic eruption that was so deadly. And again, you know, I thank my lucky stars that the biggest cities around Ruiz have not been uh, harmed by them, Manizales and and Pareda, but uh, it's a volcano that's right there in the middle of coffee country um in um Columbia. so uh so that's that's sort of the northern andes that we this is kind of the typical uh volcano uh that produces you know andesites um and maybe we get some snow-covered mountains that Can produce mud flows and pyroclastic flows from the explosive eruptions. Uh, There are some bigger, uh, bigger volcanoes that could produce something even more explosive. But in Colombia, we have you know there's a number of potentially active volcanoes uh, up and down uh, the stretch of the country into Ecuador. Um, If we do move on to Ecuador, we can get into all the volcanoes that kind of surround the city of Quito. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. So in slide number four, there's a map of a bunch of volcanoes that we find in Ecuador. And uh, there are some that sit right up next to uh, the cities, things like Guaga Pichincha and uh, uh, yes, uh, Cotopaxi and what am I, for- I feel like I'm forgetting one of the m- more active volcanoes of Ecuador. What am I forgetting? <laughs> El Reventador is another one, right? Um, But uh, the picture that we have there is a picture of an eruption at uh, Cotopaxi that uh, can produce ash that can definitely impact the areas around Quito. So again, similar sorts of volcanoes, although there are some big calderas like uh, Kilotoa. That, we ha- that you find in, in Ecuador as well. So it's kind of an extension that once you get down to sort of southern Ecuador, uh, the volcanoes kind of peter out for reasons to do with how the slab of the Nazca plate is subducting
1: underneath South America. Uh, yeah, just looking at, you know, these several volcanoes that had, again, glaciers and snow cover, um, you know, that speaks to the risk that we just spoke about with Nevada Dolores. And we see some of those um, risks that, like Rainier in the United States, for example, where it doesn't take a big eruption to be absolutely catastrophic. So there are a lot more risks than just the big Plinian volcanic eruptions that people think about when they think about dangerous, deadly eruptions.
0: All right. So as we keep on heading south, uh, Peru, there aren't a lot of active volcanoes In most of northern Peru, and you have to get down into the southern Peru before you get to the active volcanoes— Um, there are a bunch of ancient volcanoes across the the stretch of Peru where there is no active volcanism right now. And it's actually one of the places where you get a lot of metal deposits because volcanoes and metal deposits go hand in hand. That could be very much something that one could do uh, an entire podcast episode on metal deposits related to volcanoes. But Peru has a bunch of those. But down in southern Peru... We have uh, volcanoes, some of which have produced some of the largest eruptions uh, in the last thousand years. Um, The picture that we see in slide five is a picture of Huayna Patina, uh, the vent of Huayna Patina that produced a massive eruption around 1600 AD. Uh, Have you read much about Huayna Patina?
1: I've read bits and pieces about um, the, how broad the impact of that eruption was, and I'm glad you said it out loud because I know how to pronounce it. Thank you.
0: One of the things, if you ever have a chance, uh, there's a lot of good original observations of the Huayna Patina eruption from missionaries that were in Peru at the time, and they're fascinating to hear the, the sort of ways that the eruption and its results are described by people in the 1600s. Who were settling in Peru uh, from Spain, and uh, hearing some of the both the the Spanish observations and then the native people's observations of the eruption are are quite uh, exciting, considering that they're just journals from a missionary. Um, but there's a, it's a good good read if you're into reading about a massive volcanic eruption um, that affected. Potentially uh, a global climate because of how big it was. Um, so yeah, you could check that out. I don't, I don't have the name of the missionary on the top of, off the top of my head, but it's pretty easy to look up this sort of stuff about Huayna Patina. Um, so if we keep on trekking down South America, we'll head into Chile in a second. But first, uh, I wanted to talk about Bolivia because Bolivia is kind of an anomaly in the sense that it is not really directly on the coast of South America. Um, The Chileans and the Bolivians fought a war to have Bolivia be a landlocked country. Um, So a lot of the the border between Chile and Bolivia is defined by a lot of volcanoes. And then further to the east in Bolivia are a bunch of big calderas. Um, So on slide number six, there's a map that shows a bunch of circles, and those are places that have seen large eruptions over the last maybe 10 or 15 million years that are part of this area that they call, um, that, uh, has a bunch of ignimbrites, which are these big explosive, uh, deposits related to caldera eruptions. So the Bolivian area has these large, silicic, high silica, explosive calderas that have produced things that are hundreds to thousands of cubic kilometers. Down at the very bottom of the map is um, one of the biggest ones, Cerro Galán. But there's, you go out into that part of Bolivia and you just find these repeated layers of massive ash-rich deposits. So the picture on the left, I'm sorry, on the right of slide six, are just layers of different ignimbrites, different ash deposits that are related to different calderas in that part of Bolivia. So Bolivia is, is kind of unique in the sense that it has this stretch of big explosive centers that might be related to how thick the crust was getting there, um there's a lot of theories about why Bolivia and the back, the behind the main area of volcanism in the Andes has this stretch of massive explosive eruptions. And they seem to come in waves. They have these, what they call flare ups that happen. Um, so that's, that's Bolivia. Um, I've never, I've seen into Bolivia to see some of these flat areas that are filled in with the uh, deposits. And we'll see some pictures of those in a second. All right. Chile and Argentina. I'm sorry that you did not get to visit Chile right now. Uh, where were you he- Where were you headed?
1: Um, I was heading down to the area around Villarica. I was going to be giving a series of talks on volcano crisis communication, and I was going to be helping with some field work, um, and I was going to be climbing Villarica. So I was going to check out the lava lake up there, and I was going to figure out some geology field work in the region. So it'll happen eventually. It's okay. Um of course, primary concern is that everyone there is safe and healthy.
0: If you look at our map of Chile on slide seven, Chile being the, the sort of long noodle of a country, Villarica is kind of smack in the middle of the chain of volcanoes that runs from the north north to south. Um, It's in the Lakes District, so it's actually a very green part of uh, Chile, unlike up north where things are super dry. So I have a lot of experience in the region because I did my PhD work in Chile up in the very north. Um, On this map, my volcano is sadly not marked because it may or may not be a potentially active volcano. Um, But it is near the volcano that's marked Ayagüe, which is up north of Antofagasta, um and i'll i'll talk about my volcano I, my volcano i make it sound like i i own it in some way uh, my my volcano that is near and dear to me because i worked on it and wrote a bunch of papers on it and spent time climbing all over it so um but chile and argentina I kind of lump them together because, again, the border between the two countries is defined a lot of the times by volcanism or vo- the volcanic the volcanoes themselves. So, in the middle figure on slide seven, that shows some areas that ashfall has happened. So, volcanoes in Chile, the prevailing winds push that ash into Argentina. So, even though the volcanoes might be physically in Chile, some of the hazards and a lot of many times many of the hazards are being felt on the Argentina. Argentinian side of the border. So uh, they are an area where both countries have to take a, a strong interest in monitoring the volcanoes. Um, and I'll show you some pictures in a couple slides of an eruption that did just that. But uh, northern Chile, the volcanoes tend to be Ex, you know more explosive uh in sort of central chile they are still can be explosive um but there's a little more variety of the style of volcanism um and but you also get these big explosive eruptions like we had at Chaiten 10 in uh southern Chile, or sort of south-central Chile. And then we get some volcanoes down at the very end of Chile that are related to actually a little bit of the Antarctic plate that's subducting. Um, and that's a whole other stretch of uh, volcanism way down at the very southern end of the of the country. So uh, I just was going to give a little bit of a travelogue of what I saw when I was in Chile. So here are the Chilean and Bolivian Andes up around where I was working. Um, So this is the road that we were on. It was the main highway, quote unquote, of uh, this area in northern Chile. Um, The volcano that's kind of peeking out behind that ridge on slide eight is um, Ayagüe. And then, if you kind of follow the slope down Ayagüe to the left, um, you get a little bit of a lump that's a volcano in the background. And then you get a darker lump that's kind of a low, close to the edge of that white plain, which is one of these big salt flats. And that little dark black lump is a tiny little cinder cone called uh, Pirnita that is related to likely to Ayague. But Ayagwe is a volcano that um, we'll see a picture in a second that ha- it still has some active fumaroles at the top. So it's likely still a uh, potentially active volcano. Um, but in this area here, you have these big salt flats with volcanoes sticking out of them. And some of these volcanoes are, look very youthful, even though they're millions of years old, because it's also really arid, as you can guess, looking at this image. Uh, the volcano that I worked on was this one, uh, known as Alconquilcha. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of daysite lava flows. Um, you can kind of see some of them coming down the front side of the volcano. Um, but, uh, it's most noted for the fact that it was mined for sulfur up until the 1990s. Uh, the summit of that volcano, uh, that you see there is around 20,000 feet. Uh, the base of the volcano kind of in the fore- middle foreground here is about 17,000 feet. So it's like working on the moon, maybe not the moon, Mars. Mars is a better analogy. Um, the view from up there. So this is now a picture I took up on the side near 20,000 feet. Uh, all the white stuff on slide 10 uh, in the bottom of the image is su- like sulfur rocks that have uh, been altered from hydrothermal activity and a lot of sulfur. And then you get more volcanoes that you can see off into the north of here and kind of behind that ridge in the foreground where you can see a salt flat kind of peeking out uh, is actually uh, one of the bigger copper mines in the world, Kalawasi. So this is another big place where volcanoes and metals go along or go together. Uh so Akhenchil probably last erupted maybe 100,000 years ago, something like that, maybe a little less than that. Uh but we uh there isn't a lot of evidence of of activity recently maybe. It's hard to it's hard to say because again things look so young and then they turn out to be 500,000 years old. Um so it's a bit of a surprise. Uh, finally, just again to give you a sense of the, the landscape, this is the old mining town of Amincha that's on the base of Akankilcha. The volcano you see straight in the middle on slide 11 is a Yagwe again. And there's, of course, a llama right in the middle of the picture because they kind of were wandering around in herds uh, with uh, shepherds in this area. But in this, if you look really closely at Ayagué, you can see the steam plume that comes off the fumaroles near the summit. Um, But it is an arid environment that just everything is volcanic. uh, And it's pretty remarkable uh, to work up there when you're, you know, this place, the the town that I worked in was sitting at about 13,000 feet. So it's all elevations that are close to about as high as you get in north of, you know, the lower 48 states of uh, the United States. And here it's like everywhere is as tall as, is as high up from sea level as the peaks of mountains in, uh, in the United States. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. So I ended up spending some time there sampling lava f- mapping stuff. Um, and it was a lot of fun. Um, and I am fond of that part of uh, Northern Chile. Uh, so, the other Chilean volcano that uh, I wanted to talk about just again to get into this idea of a big explosive eruptions is one that actually erupted fairly recently, and that's Calbuco. Uh, this is the ash plume. It was a Plinian eruption. Uh, on slide 12, you get a picture of the plume of the volcano when it was erupting. And on the right side is some divers who are in a lake that is just choked with pumice and ash, just to show how these deposits can really... Um, the ash fall. This was on the Argentinian side of the border, if I remember correctly, uh where ash and pumice from this eruption was falling uh during this eruption. So uh, is this where you wanted to jump in to talk a little bit, Janine?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um so this was April two thousand fifteen and this this eruption was nuts. Like there was very little perceived warning. And then I see, I was on Twitter, but I was still a Twitter baby at that point. Um, I started seeing images of this huge eruption and I thought, I thought it was a prank. Um, it just came out of, it seemingly came out of nowhere and there were people recording it and playing it live. So it was one of the first really huge eruptions that were shown live streamed on social media. And then uh, the following year I actually went there uh, there was a Cities on Volcanoes conference nearby, and one of the field trips was to Calbugo. To and this was another volcano that produced a lahar. There were minor pyroclastic flows as well. But with this enormous ash plume, um, there were lahars that went down the valleys and destroyed some buildings. And this is the first time I've really seen a, a very large fishery building full of huge boulders. And um, just like these rocks, but you couldn't pick them up. And to see a building filled to the roof with large boulders just, just gives you an idea of the raw power of these mudflows, these lahars, and how much very destructive material that they can carry to quite large distances away from the volcano. So this is one of the largest eruptions we've had in recent times. And you can still see the impacts to this day if you go and check it out. So how do we
0: talk about? the size of different eruptions?
1: That's a good question. So being humans, we like to put things in boxes. <laughs> and um, a very helpful way is the VEI, or Volcano Explosivity Index. But then we also have the scale of, you know, we, we spoke in the last one, Strombolian, Volcanian, Subplinian, Plinian eruption.
0: For the VEI, what are, what are we comparing in those eruptions? when we're deciding what VEI, uh, it's a logarithmic scale and it's uh, what are we looking at?
1: So one of the quick ways to look at a VEI is looking at plume height, but to really get a solid VEI, you need to look at how much material was erupted. Um, So it starts to get a bit difficult when you have really small eruptions and they've actually added a negative side of the scale for the smaller eruptions, but for this kind of event you want to map out Um, how thick the deposits are away from it, figure out how much magma was actually erupted. And that's how you get a good VEI, for spring eruption.
0: Yeah. So at least my understanding of VEI is that it's really, it's based on sort of the volume of uh, erupted tephra, uh, which makes it a little challenging because there's a little apples and oranges when it comes to uh, more lava flow related eruptions. Um, But it is a good way to compare eruptions, uh, so people can think about the scale of what's happening. Um, I know that there's some uh, sectors of the volcanologic community that that also like to talk about the magnitude of uh, eruption, which instead of looking at volume, they look at the mass of erupted material. Uh, and it's a, it's a scale, again, a logarithmic scale that's kind of uh, like the Richter scale for earthquakes. And um, it kind of, they, it follows the same, eruptions that uh, rank at certain levels on the VEI also rank in the same place on the magnitude scale. It's just that it's a a little more easy to compare the uh, lava flow eruptions to the explosive eruptions. So there's a number of ways that we can compare uh, the size of these things. So the Calbuco eruption is definitely big. I think it was a VEI-5, if I remember correctly. Um. But uh, it was...
1: I'm not actually sure, but it'd be around there. Yeah,
0: so it it was one of the largest that we've had in a while. It was definitely what we'd consider a Plinian eruption, where you have this high eruptive ash cloud um, that uh, is spreading ash and pumice uh, wide areas because the ash is getting up to 20 kilometers in the atmosphere.
1: Actually, that was a four to get an idea of how many eruptions we have every year. So for 2015, when this eruption took place, there were um, 86 eruptions that year. 32 of them were a BEI 2 or smaller, five of them were a BEI 3, and only two of them were a BEI 4. There were no BEIs 5 or 6 or greater.
0: So uh, if we look at slide 13, it is talking about Plinian eruptions. It does say revisited only because we talked about Plinian eruptions a couple episodes back. Um, But uh, Plinian eruptions, you are releasing a whole bunch of volcanic material out of a vent because you've produced a whole bunch of bubbles and that causes uh, all this material to come exploding out. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit, Janine, about what are the pieces of a Plinian column What are the important things that you think of?
1: Yeah, so first of all, um, near the vent coming out of the volcano, we have the gas thrust area. So that's when you have, this is like shaking up a bottle of champagne and taking the cork off. It's when you have gas bubbles coming out so rapidly and expanding so violently, it's blowing the liquid apart. And in this case, the liquid is magma. And then we have volcanic ash. So in this gas thrust region, everything is being forced up out of the vent because of that pressure. It's really, it's got a huge velocity. Um, Then once it's high enough and that energy starts to drop off a little bit, there is uh, turbulence and convection. So that's when you're rising, you're entraining a lot of air, that air is heating up because the rock is so hot. And then it's rising um, as you get higher due to that convection, it's like how Um, hot air rises anywhere else, except this hot air is carrying up volcanic ash with it, or broken up rock, glass and crystals. And then when we reach an area of neutral buoyancy, so when the buoyancy of material within the plume is the same as the atmosphere, then it starts spreading out um, in that umbrella region. And if the eruption is big enough, this can even spread up wind. And that umbrella region is what really can travel across countries, across oceans. Um, and then a lot of the ash is falling out as it's going. And eventually, you'll just have extremely fine volcanic ash or glass and volcanic gas that can circle the Earth.
0: Yeah, so this is this is what's driving that... Um the spread of all of this volcanic material, whether it be ash or pumice or even volcanic aerosols like um, sulfur dioxide. Um, and we can look at, so if we look at slide 14, we can think about how we map, how we can see where the ash got spread. So uh, this is what we call an isopac map, where we're looking at lines of equal thickness, Of the ash, so this is an isopac map on slide fourteen of some of the uh, eruptions uh, from Chaiten in Chile, and this is uh, the lines on here are marking sort of centimeters thickness of ash that fell from the eruption, and you can the shape of that shape of the thickness of these deposits can then go back and tell you about maybe what the wind directions was like during parts of the eruption, um, maybe the direction that the eruption was pointed. If you had a, a eruption that wasn't uh, just straight up, it could tell you about pulsing of the eruption depending on the wh- uh, the, how the thicknesses can vary, uh, but these isopac maps are really valuable in terms of understanding, especially eruptions we didn't get to see happen
1: What do you know of the northern Cascades volcano that had an ice pack map that thickened away from the volcano and they think it was because of like um, rainfall is that like Baker or glacier or something?
0: I don't know that's not a familiar thing to me but it very well could
1: one of those northern volcanoes and so the, the isopack was really weird because um, i don't know how many kilometers away from the volcano the isopack thickened so the ash deposit thickened and then it slowly thinned again over over a distance and they think it was because of rainfall in that area which would wash out a lot more ash so there are some strange things and fun puzzles to figure out with isopacks as well
0: yes i mean isopacks Ash deposits are notoriously easy to remobilize. So you always have to take that into account to make sure that when you're looking at ancient deposits or even recent deposits, that they're primary versus reworked deposits, um, because if they get moved around, that can definitely collect in places and make it different than what actually happened. Because um, the only situation I know of where the thickest deposit of a eruption isn't right at the volcano is when you have these massive ultra Plinian eruptions that are producing ash columns that are 40, 50, 60 kilometers tall. And there, like the Taupo eruption in 186 AD, there you're depositing 25 centimeters of ash 100 kilometers from the volcano. And the thickest part of that deposit is actually offset from the volcano a little bit just because of the, the, the how much force that stuff was coming out of the vent and it wasn't really allowing stuff to fall close to the vent is my understanding, but you have really, you need really massive eruptions to do that. Uh, the other thing we can think about is the the fallout from the eruptions and where it goes. So in uh, on slide 15 is a really cool map of um, ash and sulfur dioxide uh, from uh, an eruption, the eruption of uh, Puyewe Kordonkoye, I believe, in 2011, um, that spread ash into the atmosphere, the southern hemisphere, and caused some of the more most unique problems that we have seen. It's kind of a, an equivalent to what happened in Iceland for Ayafi Alioko, but into the Southern Hemisphere, where air, airlines had to cancel flights in Australia and, and New Zealand, I believe, uh, based on ash that had traveled from South America,
1: yeah, I was living in Australia at that time, and I, I nearly had flights cancelled there were a lot of flights were cancelled between Australia and New Zealand, so that was interesting seeing this volcano so far away and going the long way, not just across the Pacific the other way, um, causing flight disruptions
0: yeah, so I mean, in this map, you can see that uh, here in June of t- uh, two thousand and eleven that the ash it was still detectable. Coming all the way around the other side of the planet and almost lapping itself uh, in South America and Chile again. So some of these big eruptions can really put ash and aerosols high into the atmosphere and spread once they get into that sort of stratospheric winds. So it's sort of remarkable uh, how much energy is being released during one of these big blasts that can send material that high and then get carried and cause disruptions you know, thousands and thousands of kilometers away. I mean, I guess Australia from Chile is probably tens of thousands of kilometers away, right?
1: It's a long way.
0: The fact that Chilean ash was causing problems in Australia is, is always one of those things that kind of uh, blows my mind. When we're talking about these really big eruptions, uh, sometimes you have a big eruption and the volcano might have some minor changes to it. The vent might get a little bigger. Um, but sometimes... The volcano kind of has <laughs> has a total structural co- meltdown. meltdown structural collapse <laughs> it, it It is no longer the same as it was before because you are emitting so much stuff so rapidly that the volcano can 't really hold itself up anymore, and we have uh, a collapse where we will produce what we call a caldera. So on slide 16 is, again, a caldera, this time not in South America. I just put it on here because it's my favorite caldera because I used to work in this caldera. It's the caldera at Crater Lake in Oregon. It is uh, a collapse feature from a volcano that was probably about the size of Mount Hood, I believe, maybe a little bit bigger than that. And uh, it collapsed during a massive eruption about 7,700 years ago and formed a lake. Well, eventually formed a lake. It didn't instantly form a lake. And that most of that volcano is now beneath the... Well, some of it is blasted outwards, and but most of it is down beneath the bottom of the lake from the collapse of, of the mountain. So uh, in the picture on slide 16, you can see Wizard Island uh, we talked about it a couple podcasts ago. It's a little volcano that formed inside the caldera well afterwards, I think is formed a couple thousand years after the collapse. And I think I mentioned in that podcast that Crater Lake gets its name from the tiny little crater you see up at the top of Wizard Island. Um, is there a rule of thumb in your mind of how you describe the difference between uh, how a caldera forms and how a crater forms
1: yeah so for me a caldera is something that is formed during collapse so when you have so much eruption material ejecting from the volcano the land is falling inwards because of gravity whereas a crater is something that is explosively excavated from and woods
0: out. So the little crater on top of Wizard Island was formed by blasting stuff out during the eruptions at Wizard Island. And then the rest of the caldera is formed by that collapse. So calderas are formed by this uh, a collapse by evacuating all of this material. And it's something that volcanologists have studied for quite a long time. So some of the early models, if we look at slide 17, you know, you can have this idea that there was a pre-existing area that might be a vol- might have had a volcano or several volcanoes but then you have a massive eruption where the land surface will collapse and produce a, a a low in the land so it might be destroying a volcano it might actually just take flat land surface like at yellowstone at yellowstone there wasn't ever a giant volcano giant mountain. There's just the land surface that collapsed after some of these big eruptions at Yellowstone. Um, And you get a a collapse, and then a lot of the times you get new material coming up underneath the caldera because it's an active volcano. So it'll come back and refill Uh, with magma and cause some of that land surface to rise back up again maybe Uh, sometimes you'll get um, little volcanoes uh, to form inside of them like at crater lake so um, on slide 18 is kind of the classic cartoon uh, from i believe howell williams of how a caldera forms like Crater Lake where the eruption gets so intense that you erupt so much magma that that magma that's holding up the volcano no longer holds up that volcano and it can form a basin instead. So in slide 18 on the right side, we have an artist's impression of what Mount Bazama, the the predecessor to Crater Lake, might have looked like erupting uh, to form the present-day caldera which uh, houses Crater Lake and Wizard Island. Um, So these caldera eruptions um, can be formed by big explosive eruptions, but are they only formed by big explosive eruptions?
1: No. No, they are not. And we all saw every day through webcams this happening in 2018 at Kilauea, the summit caldera area and produced a small, not a very large, but a small caldera collapse, which on our scale, as humans, was still enormous. But we saw that this caldera was formed by these fairly regular collapse events inwards. But there wasn't this huge explosive event going with it. So that's always something to keep in mind, is that when someone's talking about a caldera, it doesn't have to be these big violent eruptions. But a lot of them are, so
0: it's important for us to understand what happens. Yeah, so at Kilauea, there's a a number of caldera events over its history over the last many thousands of years, and they form what we kind of call these simple calderas, where you're just collapsing some of the land surface by evacuating material. But at Kilauea, it was, again, as Janine was saying, we're not erupting at the location potentially, of the of the caldera forming. We're just draining out lava somewhere. It might be at the caldera, or it might be way out at the edge of the volcano, like we saw in 2018. And that land surface can begin to collapse. So on slide 19, this isn't the uh, caldera that formed during the the most recent activity at Kilauea. But on the left side, you can see the larger caldera is kind of the the shape that you can see surrounding the the pit in the middle and you have a number of features on kilauea that form from that collapse of the land surface and there's all sorts of different names for different types of calderas a simple caldera where everything just falls kind of the same across the whole width of the caldera you know on slide 20 uh, we can have this idea of a piecemeal caldera where bits of The land surface fall to different depths. So you get a a surface that can potentially have parts of the caldera that collapsed further than other parts. Uh, Olympus Mons on Mars is a good example of potentially a piecemeal caldera where you have bits that have uh, fallen in more than other parts. Um, We have trapdoor calderas um, where part of the caldera has fallen in further than other parts. So we have the caldera, some of the calderas in the Galapagos are these trapdoor calderas where you have seen different amounts of collapse in different parts of the volcano. So there's all these different ways that we can divide how the land surface is going to collapse.
1: It's all a spectrum, right? Like we never get these beautiful, well, (laughs) in nature, we don't usually get like these beautiful different Segregated different eruption styles or types or collapse events, but this is a really helpful way for, to describe a volcanic eruption in the past or what we from what we're seeing now. So it's really neat looking at the different calderas, and sometimes you really you just don't know which type it is, especially if they have a lake over the surface. Yep,
0: yeah, they have. A, sometimes they have a lake over the surface, and a lot of the time for the big explosive eruptions, the stuff that's erupting fills that caldera in. Yeah, yeah. to some degree. So you you can't even see what was there, um. Or at least you can't see the the exact f- land surface that was collapsing. So I know at at places like the Long Valley Caldera, there's a lot of, um, what they call intra-caldera fill. So stuff that ended up falling in in the caldera or sloshing about in the caldera when the eruption happens. So you're you're filled in part of it, uh, even before everything was said and done. You know, there's parts of the world, we talked about Bolivia, there's parts of uh, Colorado where you get these, what we call overlapping or nested calderas. So the San Juan volcanic field in, in Colorado, you have a bunch of these calderas that are either overlapping with one another, or there's a caldera inside a caldera when you have multiple cycles of eruption that happen at these caldera systems. So it's pretty remarkable to see Areas where there's just so much evidence of repeated big explosive eruptions forming these calderas. Oh, we can talk about what happens after a collapse. Um, Sometimes you get the land to start rising again. One of the more famous locations uh, for that would be Laguna del Mal in Chile, where there's evidence that there's this rising of the land surface um, from magma that's underneath the, the caldera there. So it's pretty common to see that happening as well. Maybe you can talk a little bit though, because you are probably know more about this than I do, about the sorts of uh, pyroclastic density currents that are produced in one of these massive explosive eruptions.
1: Yeah. So uh, surrounding calderas, when you have these really big explosive eruptions, you can have like a, a ring of pyroclastic flow deposits completely surrounding the, the, the Um And this doesn't necessarily mean that there are pyroclastic flows going in every direction all at once. Sometimes they're going off in different directions as the eruption is progressing. But um, one idea is you can look at the amount of lithic material. So um, a few episodes ago, we spoke, we spoke about accidental materials. So that's material that is broken off as it's erupting. It's not fresh magma. Um, if there's a high amount of that, that can mean that you had, the crater at the time, widening. And so if you have this huge eruption plume and the, the crater is then widening, that can cause the ash plume to collapse downwards and then form these massive pyroclastic flows and this can produce these ignimbrite. we're talking about. So an ignimbrite is a really big, really pumice-rich pyroclastic flow deposit and they can be so big and so hot that they can actually weld um, into a solid rock instead of just pumice and ash. So there are a few different ways we can have this column collapse. We can have it just kind of bubbling over, what do we call it, boiling over the caldera edges, and we can have this changing as the eruption progresses and the, and the crater is widening, or if the caldera is collapsing as well. So these can be pretty. I hope that we don't see one of these, <laughs> a big one, in our lifetime. But it, what, this happened at Pinatubo in 1991. Um, so it's these are the biggest. Kinds of park flows that we can get.
0: Yeah, and there's some, you know, we we can see impressive examples of these in the U.S., especially if you go down to the area on Bishop, California, to see the Long Valley Caldera and the Bishop Tuff, where you just you had just that. You had this big ignimbrite sheet, as we'd call it, an ash flow tuff is another term. Um, where you have these thick, if you look at slide 25, there's this, uh, a tiny bit of it uh, for with people for scale of this pumice and ash where you can see, if you look closely at the image, you can see layers that have more chunks of dark rock that might be the, the rock around the vent that got included into it. You have some areas that are more ash rich, some areas that are more pumice rich, but there are these deposits that were probably created by succeeding waves of pyroclastic flows and ashfall during the massive um, bishop tuff eruption at the long valley caldera but these uh ignimbrites um i just i love the word ignimbrite i use it you know as much as i can i know it's a technical word it's a bit jargony but it's a great word so everyone should just learn the word ignimbrite uh because it's a great word um but, yeah, you get the, these outflowing of volcanic material from these massive eruptions that, that coat the landscape.
1: I like the way that you say it coats the landscape. It just it devastates the landscape, completely destroys everything.
0: <laughs> True enough. It, it, you know, we talk about different eruptions either sort of being topography mantling or topography erasing. Nimbrites kind of erase a lot of topography because they just are so thick that they can bury the sort of pre existing features.
1: And they can go over other volcanoes as well. Like these things can go up and over very large high, like topographic highs in the landscape. So they're just so big, they keep going. And these can go up the tens, I think even hundreds, several hundreds of kilometers. You can still get these fine deposits. So this is the this is the worst case scenario for a volcanic eruption is is if you're forming an ignimbrite.
0: Yeah, there's some evidence of some of these ignimbrite deposits, yeah, going hundreds of kilometers out from the vent. You know, we're talking things like the Peach Springs Tuff in Arizona. I think it was sort of you could get deposits of it. Hundred, I think, of over a hundred kilometers from when the where the eruption happened, and you know, right near the volcano, we have these sort of characteristics of an ignimbrite. You can look on slide twenty six that you have um, plinian fall deposits that then are mixed in with uh, what we call surge deposits. It's related to the stuff flowing outward. Um, they get thinner and more ash-rich the further you get out. And then we have these uh, what they call coignimbrite ash falls. So as the ash flow races out across the surface, you have ash that will then settle out afterwards that is, um, can spread for quite a long distance, hundreds or thousands of about thousands, but hundreds of kilometers away from the volcano. But you can still have ash fall from the Plinian part of the eruption, the big ash column that can spread out uh, thousands of kilometers from the vent. And you get these these thick layers of solid ash. So here uh, on slide 27 is a picture I took in the Andes where you have San Pedro and San Pablo, which are uh, twin volcanoes in the – high Andes and a little cinder cone called La Perunia. But then it's all built on this thick deposit. You can see uh, a cliff-forming unit that's the San Pedro ignimbrite, which is, again, one of these areas where the whole landscape was kind of given a a new coat of thick ash uh, to cover the area. Even, you know, some more ignimbrite deposits on slide 28 from the Andes, showing just these thick layers of pumice that are coming out. Some of these are airfall deposits, some of these are ash flow deposits, but you just see this layering of of material coming out uh, from the large explosive eruptions. You had mentioned welding. Do you want to talk... How, how much? How comfortable are you to talk a little bit about welding?
1: Uh, I can let you go. To the go. I mean, I, I grew up around it. We had, um, with the topo eruptions in New Zealand, a lot of Beautiful weld of bright as you get closer to the volcano, and they even change color as you go. So, I'll let you talk a bit about why that happens and why they change color.
0: Stop me and correct me if I'm wrong here, but welding is, is a little bit enigmatic that it's not just the thickness that produces welding. You can have relatively thin deposits that weld, and you can have big, thick deposits that don't weld. So, there's there's some still discussion about how exactly welding occurs. It might have to do with the water content of the magma, accumulation rates, things like that. But you get this welding where the interior, so if we look at, let's say, you know, on slide 29 is kind of a schematic of what welding looks like, where there might be the interior of the flow might be the most welded, and then it gets less welded as you head towards the, the outer edges of your deposit. And it might be welded closer to the bottom than near the top. On slide 30, uh, you can see this is an example of the welding in one of the biggest deposits, explosive deposits that we know of, the bandolier tuff. You have areas that are welded to the point where it's become glass again. So you get obsidian Forming from welding within the deposit, and then as you work your way outward, you have different amounts of of uh, oxidation and and um, vapor passing through the the tuff to produce partial welding to the no welding out towards the edge of it and it changes the porosity so you in the core of a welded ignimbrite things you've lost all the empty space because you've melted stuff and then back out at the edges you have got things that are still like you know maybe loose pumice and ash anything you want to add there
1: Nope, you're doing great
0: (laughs) i feel like this is suddenly my comprehensive exams all over again Janine is, is testing to see if I say oh, something nice. right or wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, some of the features, if, if you're out and about looking at um, volcanic deposits, you can look for evidence of welding. There are these features called fiame, where you've taken pumices and wel- began to melt them or totally melted them and flatten them. And you get these thin um, wisps uh, that look kind of like little flame structures. It's Italian for flame. So, in this picture here on slide thirty one there's um some fiame, some flattened pumices, some of which on the left hand side are less welded and then, on the right hand side, you can see dark smears that are totally welded pumices uh, from the Bishop Tuff that are places you look for those fiame for evidence that you've see- that you have welding in the deposit, and you end up with these really crazy um Sequences. So this is a picture, the last uh, slide, slide 32 is a picture of the La Garita caldera. And you get this welding where some of the areas are much darker um, than others and more resistant to erosion than others based on the extent that the welding has happened in the deposits. So you're taking magma. That's rising up through a volcano. You're fragmenting it into all of this ash and pumice. And then as it gets deposited, it's remelting and going back into more dense material just from um, maybe the heat and the water content of that material that's piling up from the eruption.
1: Yeah, and there's this really cool thing you can see with some of these really thick deposits, too, where the, the color is changing as you go up. Because as you're as this massive eruption is happening, the initial magma that's coming out is a slightly different composition than the older stuff, or the the latest stuff that's coming out during that eruption. So you can actually see a color change because the composition of the magma is changing too.
0: Yeah, and that's what you're seeing also in this last slide 32 of lagaritas. is some of the early material are more silica rich and lighter and colored and the later material is darker and colored and you get an inverted record of what was inside the magma chamber because the idea is you empty the top part first and they get to the bottom and that color change is related to that compositional change and then you get these cool spires that can form because you have gases that are coming out of the deposit after it's all landed and piled up and you get sort of these fossil fumaroles that you can see in the in the landscape where you had hot gases passing through the ash deposit as it was sitting there after the eruption anything else i think we're pretty much talked our way through explosive eruptions
1: yeah i think that's definitely a good overview i mean as with everything everything is much more complicated and complex and diverse than we can talk about in these relatively short uh, podcasts but i mean if, if you want to look up some really neat ones check out the in Rights in new zealand on google um they're they featuring a the lot of the rings near hopperton where i am from um and the bishop tuff in california is also really neat i have some beautiful pink Welded ignimbrite samples from there, and you can see the white pumice. So they weren't quite flattened to fiame, still little pumice chunks in it. So there are these incredibly enormous eruptions, but as we <laughs> remind you all the time, generally the larger the eruption, the more rare it is. So the chance of us seeing one of these in our lifetime is much, 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 much smaller than, say, VEI 133 eruption.
0: Next week we will talk, continue to talk about explosive eruptions because we're going to talk about volcanoes and climate fun. We'll talk about some of the volcanoes in, along the western Pacific Rim uh, and think about uh, how volcanoes can influence climate during big eruptions of various kinds. So hopefully that'll be exciting for lots of people. I always get a lot of questions about volcanoes and climate, so this should hopefully uh, answer a lot of those questions. Uh, Any last words you want to add, Janine?
1: Just again, you know, Whoever's listening out there. I hope you're okay. I know this is a really scary time and it's gone on and on. And my thoughts are with you. And um, check out our other podcasts. I have, I've recorded 50 volcano moments videos now. So there's a pretty good um, resource that we have for you during this time. And If it's something that can just distract you or help teach your kids or your students. I know there are a lot of very concerned students out there with
0: graduation coming up. We're going to get through this together. Okay. Yep. And I want to thank the almost uh, thousand downloads we've gotten of the first two episodes uh, of our Volcanology Basics podcast from uh, Popular Volcanics. So I'm glad people are, are downloading this and hopefully listening to it, enjoying it. Um, and we'll be back next week with another episode. So uh, be sure to follow Popular Volcanics on Twitter at popvolcanics, where you can see when we're going to when we release each episode, and check out the website uh, popularvolcanics.weebly.com for links to the slides and other interesting information. So, with that, uh, I will say uh, good day and hope to talk to you all again soon.